Welcome to It's Pronounced Memoir, a podcast where we read and discuss celebrity memoirs. This is our second episode discussing Barbara Streisand's opus, My Name is Barbara. Although this is a standalone chat, please do go back and listen to part one after you finish this episode for a complete Barbara experience. Joining me as always are my co-hosts and fellow Barbara maniacs, Anne Immig and Wendy Aronsons. Hello, Wendy. Hello, Mariana. Hi, Anne. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> the trigger warning for today's episode is powerful women who don't take shit from anyone. So if you're struggling with fragile masculinity today, please take care and maybe listen at a later date. <laughs> Now, before we jump or dive in, depending on your bathing suit wardrobe, I have a surprise quiz for Anne and Wendy. Yikes. Yeah. I will ask a question, and if you know the answer, do not shout it out, but please raise a quiet thumb, and I will call on you. Oh. Ready? Uh, Yeah. Wendy's thumb is like already on her forehead. It's like the Jeopardy thing. I'm ready. <laughs> what pseudonym has Barbara Streisand used throughout her career? Oh, it's like Svengalia Wally. Oh, it, 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 oh, it's not a vocal quiet thumb. <laughs> okay, thumb down. Wendy? Uh, it's like Angela Scarangela. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, and? Angela Scarangela. Scarangela. Oh, that's it. Angela Scarangela. Okay, so I'm the only one who can do the ding, ding, ding when I hear the correct (laughs) answer, which has not happened yet. Or the correct answer, which neither of you have gotten, is Angelina Scarangela. We were way Uh, off. Gross. Not way off, but off enough. <laughs> I wouldn't let you pilot this plane. And how did Barbara Streisand come up with that name? Is that secret question number two? No, that's secret What's... question one, subpart A. <laughs> You're not supposed to speak. That was not a quiet thumb. <laughs> and oh. neither was that, Anne. Uh, okay, Wendy. No, I don't know the answer. I was just showing you. That you have a thumb. Well, she had a job working for the phone company, and that's the pseudonym she used, right? Minka. Minka Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> they get no. confused all the time. No, Barbara did different accents at the switchboard. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Which has nothing to do with that. Mariana, please enlighten us. I will, Anne. She found it in the phone book. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. Ready for secret <laughs> question number two? Get those quiet thumbs ready. <laughs> Who is Betty Joan Persky? She's a famous movie star whose name I'm forgetting, but it's like on the tip of my tongue. You know, if we had a sponsor, we would cut to that sponsor right now. (laughs) That's a movie star's uh, real name. And then they have a stage name. Yes. And it's an older, very famous. Betty Davis? No, because she's not Betty. I remember her name's not Betty. They became good friends. Oh, she directed her. Oh, it's on the tip of my tongue. I'm going to have a lot of editing to do. (laughs) Do you give up? 
It's yes. Lauren Bacall. Oh, oh, yeah. Yes. So let's be a little bit more careful reading future memoirs, please. <laughs> well, it you know, if this hadn't been a thousand pages, maybe I would have retained more. Even though no, we never Barbara. have on any yeah. other book. Probably not, yeah. All right, so now with that embarrassment out of the way, let's talk Barbara. <laughs> And just a quick note that we will end today's discussion with a lightning round of tidbits I told everyone around me as soon as I read them. Those will be fascinating details from the memoir that are fodder from when you want to sound more interesting with me, mm. that's daily. Now, when we last left Barbara, she was starring in A Star is Born. And as we're picking it up now, the star is maturing and directing. <laughs> so let's go back and reminisce and hope that I can find some time machine music when editing. Wendy, what is your earliest Barbara exposure in terms of movies or songs? I think it was the song You Don't Bring Me Flowers that she did with Neil Diamond. Mm -hmm. And as an 11 year old, I really appreciated the uh, ballad about a cold, loveless marriage. And I'd sing that <laughs> quite often. <laughs> <laughs> and how about you? You know, my parents didn't listen to her. She wasn't on TV. So I think it was in the movie theater. I think it was Yent. My earliest memory is I loved What's Up, Doc. When my parents and I came to America from the former Soviet Union, it was one of the first movies that I saw. And uh, I loved it. I thought it was very, very funny. I recently rewatched it and I still liked it. And I also was a big fan of the duet with Donna Summer, Enough is Enough. The best. I love it. Is there a movie of hers that you would like to see as a result of reading this book? I, I haven't ever seen Prince of Tides or Yentl. Uh, and now that I know in minute detail how those were put together and directed, I would uh, like to see both of them. How about you, Anne? Watched, I, I watched Funny Girl because of the the book and I really enjoyed it um and what's weird is I have totally mushed together the mirror has two faces in Prince of Tides so clearly I need to rewatch those again I I haven't watched them since they were in the theater after the new the latest Star is Born came out I went back and watched that I would like to go back and watch the way we were yeah Fun mm -hmm. story about that. Um, I did not get into an acting class when I tried to use one of her monologues crying on the phone <laughs> in college. That oh. was not a good that was not a good monologue choice. <laughs> I don't recommend it. Oh. Sad. I could see you doing that well. Oh, Hubble. Oh, that's also because my <laughs> gym teacher told me, has anybody ever told you you look like a young Barbara Streisand? No. Oh my Nobody God. had ever told me that. That's not what I wanted to hear. Number yeah. one, you know, she might've had like a tight perm at that point. <laughs> I don't know. She <laughs> <laughs> But also even at the time I was like, is that because I'm Jewish? Because I'm pretty sure we don't look anything alike, but that just stayed in my head. Wow. I digress. Mariana, continue yeah. on. I would like to see nuts. Oh. Hearing her describe what that experience was like, she portrayed a, a prostitute, a sex worker who kills a customer because he attacks her. And the amount of research that she did working for with women and just meeting with therapists to understand the characters, I think was really profound and what she understood about 
physical abuse and emotional abuse. So I'd like to live in that world for a little bit as entertainment. (laughs) I want to watch that again too. And the name of it, I'm thinking it sounds like a zany comedy. She's done so many movies. I can like see a zany poster, but that's like, what's up doc. And yeah, that part of the book was super interesting. I would like to rewatch that. I'd like to I realized I had it confused. There is a zany comedy about a nut house, quote unquote, called mixed nuts. So that's oh, what I had thought it was. Not to be confused sequel. with D's nuts. <laughs> Good one. Thank you. It's hard to discuss this book to do it justice because she describes various phases in her life in terms of projects that she was working on. And she goes into such depth and is so thoughtful that at some point I felt like I could direct the until myself if called yeah. upon yeah. you know <laughs> but it, there were parts that I thought it was just too much information but then overall it was super interesting so I wanted to discuss some of the topics that come up in the book let's start with the men excellent she was married to Elliot Gould which we know but it didn't work out did he not so happy about that I just felt we could get rid of him quickly It was interesting when she was doing Funny Girl on Broadway, which she played a character whose husband or whose love interest had a gambling problem. Elliot also had a gambling problem, which she didn't know about. At some point, Elliot gets a Best Supporting Actor nomination. I don't remember what that was for. It's like Ted, Alice, and all those names, maybe. And even Carol, Ted, and Alice. yeah. And even though he didn't win, she feels like he's no longer in her shadow. That's a theme that we've seen a lot of with some of the other female memoirists like Brittany who are are concerned that their partners are in their shadow. Well, it's weird because that's also part, that's the main relationship conflict in Funny Girl. So not only the gambling part, but the Fanny Bryce outshining. And ultimately that's what dissolved their marriage and the gambling So that's so crazy. It is strange. But I also was thinking like, who isn't in her shadow? She's so much bigger than life, right? Pierre Trudeau, she was involved with him. And she writes, he was my superior intellectually. And I've always loved being with people who can teach me something. I didn't get the sense that he was her superior intellectually. Obviously, he had something to teach her. And she, I'm sure, had a lot to teach him. But it didn't seem like he was that much smarter or that there was any kind of inequality there. The the age difference. So I think he had that world wisdom and she got famous so young that she was naive in certain ways. She says that he was old enough to be her father. He was 50 and she was 27. And she also knew that something was missing. My brain was in love, not my body. Mm. Harsh. She just tells it like it is. But I did like how she became friendly, and is to this day with his son, Justin Trudeau. Pierre also wanted to have children, yeah. and she didn't want to have children anymore. So she she could have been Justin's mother. Ooh. <laughs> I'm not sure that's how it works. To get over this brain and love, not body, she starts dating Ryan O'Neill. He's a hottie. Yes, RIP. He just recently passed. He was a hottie. He was a hottie. <laughs> that keeps happening. People keep dying from our podcast. Stay healthy, everyone. Okay, continue. (laughs) (laughs) Barbara writes, my relationships were not going well. I wanted to find a teacher or a businessman, someone not in show business. 
meets Ryan. He invites her to a screening of Love Story that he starred in with Ali McGraw, and she had fun with him. She had to convince Peter Bogdanovich to cast him in What's Up, Doc? But they broke up before they started filming because she thinks that she was too serious for Ryan. Again, it's interesting that she is such a driving force in all the projects she's involved in. She convinces Peter Bogdanovich to cast her co-star. I wonder if that had an impact on their relationship. Would one of you like to talk about John Peters? He's a weirdo. Barf. John Peters is pretty infamous. He was a hairstylist and parlayed his relationship with Barbara into becoming a producer. But by all accounts and from personal experience, he's a bully. He uh, always tried to prove or act like he was more powerful than Barbara. I, I thought that he very much used her to get to where he wanted to go. Apparently, um, the movie Shampoo is partially based on him with Warren Beatty. But um, yeah, you could have a whole book just about John Peters. He's still alive and she didn't pull any punches. I mean, she writes how he was abusive and had anger issues and uh, had her buy a house in his name for them to live in, things like that. And really tried to undermine her to do his own power grab. So I think she was with him for 10 years, which is... Yes, for almost 10 years. Oh, like 10 years too many. I worked at Warner Brothers and he was a producer that was on the studio a lot trying to... I think he was making Superman at the time and he wanted to talk to my boss and my boss didn't want to talk to him. So instead of just waiting for my boss to call him back, John Peters would call every half hour and this went on for days. (laughs) And he was a con man, right? Like Mm -hmm. even as a hairstylist, he like said he could style a wig. It was clear he'd never even done it. He went and built something on her land that was not solid and caused a huge mudslide. They weren't even together anymore. It was just like nightmare after nightmare with this guy. Barbara says that his therapist told her, well, you know, John is a thief, which is, I don't know if that's what therapists are supposed to say. She dates Richard Baskin who earned a lot less than she did, and it bothered him. Barbara said, I'll live on your budget, but it didn't work out. But he was also married. That part was a little confusing to me. (laughs) Yeah, that was like the second problem, not the first problem. Warren Beatty, she's not sure if they had sex. I don't know either. Yeah, I don't, maybe (laughs) we all did. I don't know. No, no, I don't know if they did. I know I didn't. Okay. Okay, Wendy, good to know. And who remembers, this is not a quiet thumb moment, who remembers how she met her husband, her current husband? She just walked up to him and was like, who fucked up your hair? And he said that was the moment he fell in love with her. (laughs) That is a good line. It is. It's a good line. He's so handsome. He really is. I guess it was like growing out from a role. So it was like dyed on the end and a weird haircut and... I think she just cut through all the pretense of how celebrities usually talk to each other. And it's so her, right? I don't remember if it was at a fundraiser or I think it was. No, friends uh, invited them to a dinner party Oh, they they wanted them to meet. Yeah. Yeah. Her friends set them up. So the next part I have is to talk about mythical Barbara, which is a part that super surprised me because she seems super rational and very concrete in her ideas but she does have some uh shall we say supernatural moments 
right? Yeah, she's super woo-woo throughout the whole book. Remember the table? Who who wants to discuss that? <laughs> so her brother had seen a medium and told her about it over the phone and said that the table was jumping all around the room. And she was like, that's, that's crazy. But he was insistent that she come and experience it. And she was always looking for ways to connect with her father from the beyond. So she agrees to go to this medium and her father, like through the medium and through like the number of taps of the table leg corresponded to certain letters. So he apologizes to her. He brings up the Anshul character name that she decides to use in Yentl and is also the name next to her father's on the tombstone, things that nobody else could have known. And then he gives her the message, sing proud, which was especially important to her because she was still deciding whether or not she was going to sing in Yentl, I think, because she was always weighing what was best for the project and also how to get it in front of people. And... Then she describes seeing the table jumping all around the room. I mean, and she swears to it. And honesty is like one of her core values. So, and, and, and just throughout the book, she calls on her father, like when they're doing an on location set for Yentl and it's cloudy out. And this is their only moment. She prays her father, the clouds part, the sun comes through. Um, Do you remember the part about the mums from part one that does anybody remember that? Yeah. Changing colors on her veranda. Yeah. She wanted a certain color mum, two colors of mums, and the gardeners planted the wrong color. And one day she came back and they were the right color, totally changed colors. The gardener swears they weren't there. And this is Mm -hmm. all one of her big through lines is your thought creates reality. And she comes back to this again and again about keeping a positive mindset or negative if things aren't going well and how thought becomes reality and she swears her mom's changed color i mean there's just all of these times in the book where you're like whoa okay i didn't see that coming i think there was a, a hard-working gardener out in that mum pot about 2 a.m i think it was you know- sydney chaplin like i'm gonna keep messing with this woman and make her feel insane and instead she thinks it's a miracle then her beloved dog dies sammy and she has sammy cloned right mm-hmm. as we do Mm-hmm. <laughs> she's gotten a lot of shit for that over the years but i liked her telling her part of it it actually yeah, made sense. i did too yeah i did too but then at some point she sees a cloud shaped like a dog and so uh, she sees it as a message from sammy and she said like i wouldn't believe it myself but i took photographs and they're on my website but we couldn't find the her passion projects to my reading oh, and maybe it's just by the number of audio hours or pages, Yentl seems to be like the big passion of her mm-hmm. life where she really came into her own as a director. She did everything on that movie. It's really impossible to summarize it, so I won't. It's really and- shocking <laughs> it ever got made and was so popular about this, you know, yeshiva student far from mainstream stuff. She talks about how even though the Jews control Hollywood, um, People don't want to tell deeply Jewish stories, especially at the time. And this is one thing I appreciate about her and her book throughout is like, it's such a core piece of who she is and her curiosity, listening to her talk about like she identified with wanting to learn everything, trying to imagine not being able to do that and how painful that was. And her thirst for knowledge is insatiable. It's mind boggling. Yeah. 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 And so is this character. So 
it's amazing the movie got made. It's amazing that it, ha it had popular success. So doesn't she wins the Golden Globe for directing it, correct? And it was nominated for Best Picture Oscar, but she wasn't nominated for Best Director. And many years later, the Oscars had her announce the Best Director Award when the woman won for directing The Hurt Locker. Oh, uh, Catherine Bigelow? Catherine Bigelow. And I think they were... I don't know if they knew that she would win. I don't know what happened, but it was kind of a, you know, I didn't win this 20 years ago because I was a woman director, but things are changing. I can't remember what it's called, award and like a famous speech she gave when she was overlooked by the Oscars. And she, I think she balances well, like not trying not to approach her from an ego place, but just from a practical mm -hmm. place of like not getting nominated and being a woman. Yeah, for sure. It's not, she doesn't sound bitter, but she does recognize that there was an injustice happening, which there for sure was. I mean, it doesn't make any sense for your picture to be nominated and the director isn't because the director right. is the picture. She does a good job always of making everything sound really logical. Like when she mm -hmm. talked about the cloning of her dog and like what people don't realize is that's extremely helpful for research purposes. And that was why she did it. And like, there's always this other side of the story that doesn't get told that completely negates her being this big ego. That's why the book is so long because she has so many myths about herself to dispel and just to educate or explain this is how she is and why she is. And I found in reading all about her directing and the acting, how in a way, she's very humble. I mean, she admits when she was wrong. She says she asks for help constantly. Yeah. She she collaborates with people. She gives them all the praise in the world. She acknowledges their contributions. She basically says, I couldn't have done it without them. They The lighting was great. She's generous in giving sharing credit. Mm -hmm. It says something that she's had the same collaborators and management and assistants and all of that for decades. Yeah, and that does say a yeah. lot. Mm -hmm. She also, she talks a lot about physical and emotional abuse and her stepfather did not physically abuse her, but he did emotionally abuse her. And that is one of the themes and nuts um, without giving too many spoilers for this 40 year old movie. <laughs> But it deals with uh, physical abuse as well. She tells a story that her stepfather, Louis Kind, who had a really negative effect on her life, he didn't see her at all. He didn't appreciate her, even though his name was Louis Kind. He, he was not kind to her. In 1964, her mother told her that he was going to come to see her and Funny Girl. And she woke up with a scratched cornea, I believe. And she said, like, there's no way I'm going to let an understudy go go on. And she got Novocaine, some kind of... Uh, Steroid pain. or something. Yeah. yeah, something in her eye. And she did the performance and he never came to see her afterwards. She didn't know what he thought about it. Her Ugh. doorman buzzed. He said he left like a, a jar of hard candy and it was pretty. And she said she kept it in her bathroom for decades. And then when she did nuts, she realized she didn't have to hold on to it anymore and she threw it out. And I just think about but how little it would have cost him to go up to her after the play and say, great job. 
it's so bizarre and aggressive that he didn't. Prince of Tides, she fell in love with Pat Conroy's book, which was 567 pages, but hers is longer. This yeah. is not a competition. <laughs> she tried to reach him several times and he would not return her calls. And then one time she tracked them down at a hotel and she called and she said, she said right away, this is Barbara Streisand. Why aren't you returning my calls? And he had thought that it was his friends pranking him, that it wasn't <laughs> yeah, really her calling, which is just such a, oh. She's so tenacious. She read the novel like five times. Like she was obsessed with it. She went on a cruise of the Greek islands with friends. Yes. And the, what she did most of the time was read this book and make notes. Yes. There was this moment of synergy that he talks about too, that while he was writing it, he was like listening to her music. I can't mm -hmm. remember the exact oh, details. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, now I'm thinking of what Mariana said, because like on one hand, she takes it as a huge mystical moment of synergy. And it's like, well, she's on the radio constantly. <laughs> <laughs> like, I gotta just been... What else are you going to listen to? Yeah. So she loved working with Pat Conroy. And she said he gave her the gift of working with her son. She was portraying a therapist in the movie and they cast another actor as the son and Pat Conroy's like, no, no, he's all wrong. And then he saw Jason's photograph. Is that his name? Mm -hmm. Yeah, Jason Gould. Jason's photograph um, on Barbara's mantle and said, how about him? And she's very grateful to him for that, to Pat and Conroy. And he really wanted the role too, which was amazing. Yeah, because I think he's very private and he's out of the limelight. Either of you remember the reception when Prince of Tides came out? I mean, she was a little bit mocked. For her nails. Her, her fingernails. Yeah, and you're right. shots of her legs. Yeah. Yeah. She no, cannot I, win. She can't. It's impossible to adequately summarize this book because every page mm -hmm. goes into so many tangents. And like I said before, she's a truth teller and she writes about life and her experiences in it. Did you find her relatable or is she breathing such rarefied air that we can't connect to her? She's trying to get respect. She loves her family. She wants affection in return from her family. So there's those universal themes. But of course, then she tells these anecdotes that are like, well, I snuck my dog into the White House and Secret <laughs> Service got all upset, but Obama's like, she's cool. So there's things <laughs> like that. But like I said last time, it would be weird and disingenuous if she didn't share that stuff because she is a remarkable person with a remarkable life. So I didn't ever have the impression once while reading this that I thought she was out of touch or bragging at all. Mm -hmm. I think it helps a lot that she's such a passionate activist. It, she's constantly talking about the greater world around her and mm -hmm. the problems of the world and wanting to give somebody a leg up or help with a cause. And that shows that her mind is always bigger than just on celebrity life, which a lot of celebrities aren't. So I just feel like she enjoys all the benefits of celebrities. She pays a high price as well. Um, she's terrible stage fright. She doesn't enjoy performing. Yes. It's incredibly stressful for her. And she does it when she has a goal. She wants to make money, um, whether <laughs> it's to raise money to flip the Senate or because she wants to buy a piece of art. So mm -hmm. in those ways, she's like very practical. And I think also she always has felt like an outsider. 
she was being told she was unattractive as a kid and like not fitting in any box as an entertainer and then being this trailblazing woman who just has obstacle after obstacle and hardship in relationships. Like, I think all of that makes her really relatable. But then like Wendy says, and then all of a sudden she's reading, you know, practically love notes from the Prince of Wales. And it's like, you're mm-hmm. like, oh yeah. Right, right. You know, and she's BFFs with all these heads of state. So it's, it's, it's kind Paris. Of head spinning. Yeah. yeah. She does go into huge detail about the different movies and some more so than the albums, I think. But if Yentl is your favorite movie, you are going to eat this with a spoon because no detail is left unsaid. And the one project that she has a lot of regret about not making is A Normal Heart, which was Larry Kramer's work about the AIDS crisis. And that was also just a devastating account of how hard she tried to get that project done and she was not able to. And um, it's something that meant a lot to her. And I think her efforts lasted over a decade. And then it was finally made by someone else, right? Yeah. And she As a TV movie. Yes. She and Larry Kramer didn't see eye to eye. She had a, a tumultuous working relationship with him, but she still wishes him the best when she writes about it. Yeah. She still writes about it with heartache. And she also well, another. Dead. Yeah. Well, yeah. At the um, time, she wished him the best. well that's the perfect segue because now Sondheim is dead as well and I was going to talk about another passion project that she never got to fulfill was a movie remake playing Mama Rose in Gypsy which she's perfect for that role and she had the go-ahead from Columbia Pictures but she had to get permission from all of the original writers and this was really interesting because she has the chutzpah to ask people like well Stephen Sondheim specifically multiple times to rewrite lyrics of his famous songs because they were out of context. But again, she's such a freaking genius. She says one word just doesn't quite make sense. And Stephen Sondheim goes back to libretto and he goes, oh, it was transposed wrong. I mean, and so he's on board. He loves collaborating with her, but he does not give her permission in the end. He said, you have to either choose directing or acting. So this was really surprising because they had always worked well together. And that was ultimately the reason the project fizzled and her rationale. She said, what, you didn't like Yentl? Like she had already done both successfully together, but she, she only can guess that she thinks he always preferred the stage version of Gypsy. And so just kind of gave another reason not to have another movie remake. We don't really know, but um, that was another big passion project of hers that was not fulfilled. So Interesting that she covers both. And she's also an activist. Please say it like you're in a third grade play. She's also an activist. (laughs) She's a Democrat. She's very passionate about human rights, which Anne finds very funny. Doesn't know. doesn't know Lauren Bacall's real name but this she's cracking up. It's just so much. Even that section is is incredible. No, it's incredible. She's done so much good. She calls it like she sees it like and she has the financial wherewithal to really make a difference she also donates a lot of money she does um she does concerts where she raises money she's been i think very very impactful yeah she was given the presidential medal of freedom in 2015 because of her activism by president obama and 
it's really funny. She realized how he's so charming and says like, oh, Barbara, you're Jewish. I didn't realize you were yeah, Jewish. Right. <laughs> really, really funny. Um, yeah. That speaks a lot about how much money and time she gives. Going back to what you said, Anne, about her stage fright, she writes about how she was offered to do a, a residency at a casino in Las Vegas. And they offered her a lot of money and she was hesitant. And then they said, okay, we'll sweeten the pot and give you $3 million to donate to the cause and charities of your choice. And she was like, how can I, how can I turn that down? I can't turn that down. Anybody else with the amount of uh, wealth and prestige that Barbara had or has, $3 million isn't even that much. But she recognized the power that money could do towards helping different causes and people. It was in Las Vegas. Which mm -hmm. She does two shows over New Year's Eve and she flies her mother out. Awful. That awful. was an awful story. Um, so she flies her mother out and she doesn't see her in the audience. And then a friend of hers tells her later, look, I didn't want to tell you, but your mother said she was going out. It was New Year's Eve. She wanted to celebrate with her friends. And I'm thinking, what the fuck is there to do in Las Vegas on New Year's Eve other than see Barbara Streisand? I'm sure that was the hugest ticket, the hottest ticket in town. She's quite kind to her mother, I thought. She more said than she, she deserves, yeah. More than Wendy thinks she deserves. Well, <laughs> yeah. No, I agree. I, after a lot of therapy, she understands her mother, how difficult it was for her to lose her husband, Barbara's father, when her children, Barbara and her brother, were very young, and how scared she was of losing the stepfather, this Lewis kind, how scared she must have been of losing him. Yeah. And that she also was a singer. She was jealous of Barbara. And she was jealous of her success. There's some crazy stories. Elliot Gould, who gave Barbara a bracelet or some piece of jewelry, and the mother just loses her shit. She's like, why are you giving it to her? You should be giving it to me. You know, she's nothing without me. Like, complete madness. She and even just... says that about some award. Yeah, I should be award. getting the award, not her. The mother would say, like, I, yeah, she gets the singing from me. I used to sing around the house. And Barbara's like, never never yeah. yeah and her mom also talks about how she doesn't know how to be any other way she didn't receive love as a kid generations ago there weren't antidepressants if you had any sort of like postpartum depression which is so common people were institutionalized i mean people women mm -hmm. were cast away for you know being hysterical and i feel like for many families like with every successive generation like the mothering gets a little more loving and warmer. And Barbara was able to turn that around with her son from all yeah. we can yeah. tell, but her mother just could not and did not at all. They never did have that coming together and the loving relationship. She found it never. with Virginia Clinton. Virginia Clinton. Yes. That's could because you tell us about that? Mom. She was friends with Bill and she met Bill's mom and they just kind of adopted each other and kept in touch and she took her as a surrogate mom up until the day she died. Yeah, it sounds like by all accounts, Virginia Clinton was just warm and happy and always wanted fun and just the perfect nurturer that Barbara needed. Yeah, it was a very loving relationship. And then after Virginia died several years later, um, Barbara's own mother died and she had Alzheimer's. And then two of her close friends died. 
Marilyn Bergman, Marilyn and Alan Bergman, who were her collaborators, they wrote most of her songs. And her best friend, Sis, yeah. Sis, who she'd known since she was 19. So she also had tremendous loss in her life. Mm hmm. I really like what you said, Wendy. Somebody who's a big asshole just doesn't maintain friendships and working relationships like this. You can have all the money and power in the world, mm -hmm. but if you're impossible, you're not going right. to have friends around you and people who want to work with you like this. No, and uh, Renata, who she talks yeah. glowingly of, is her assistant and house uh, manager, all of that, who's her right-hand person, has been with her for 40 years maybe. And that's a completely stressful type of relationship or it can be. So the fact that she's been there 40 years and is basically Barbara's family, yeah. there's no way she's not considered family. And that speaks right. volumes. It reminds me of a funny story that she tells. I don't know if she means for it to be funny, but um, when she and Jim, when they were dating, is it going to happen? Is it not going to happen? At some point she was like, oh, it's just over. And she gets home and she asks Renata to make her a hot dog. And then she makes her another one. And then she asks her for an ice cream cone and then another ice cream cone. And I just love that image. It's just like, that's all of us. You know? Yeah. Um, You'll never hear her sipping on bone broth or talking about doing no. that. Like never. Now at the end of the book, the epilogue, where she's talking about being in some recording session and they have all these big decisions to make. And she's like... Well, I couldn't really focus because I was sitting by the coffee table with all the food on it. And then she describes like the salami and the cheese and yeah. And then uh, she doesn't take Jim's calls for a while and he gets her fax number and he sends her fax and he said, if you don't call me, I'm going to start faxing you smut, which yeah, is that very funny. funny. That was They sound besotted with each other. And, yeah. you know, she says how he will go to all of her recording sessions and just like peck away at his laptop because he just likes to be in the same room with her all the time. Right. Very sweet. Yes, very sweet. So before we go to my much anticipated by me lightning round in a slow speed, does anybody want to add anything else? I, I would add that I wasn't too excited to read this because of its length and, you know, I probably had a little bit of a, a bias about Barbara being a diva just because of what's out there. But I would tell anybody who is even slightly interested in this to, to get a copy because it really is truly fascinating. Just a great look at uh, a true genius. I would just, she's, I think just think she's brilliant off the charts. And for any like great. Gen Xer, it's a a history lesson. It's it's bigger than just her. It crosses different wars, current events, presidents. It's, it was really interesting. I think we talked before about we didn't know if she had a ghostwriter. She doesn't think one in the acknowledgments, I don't believe. She had research help and, you know, all of that. But it's it's really well done. Yeah, I think it's a great book to like dip into, read a chapter, mm -hmm. get a dose of Barbara and then go mm -hmm. on with your life. And now that we've finished with it, I kind of miss it. I miss her. Well, she's still in Wendy's head, if you ever want to visit. She That's lives right. there. She lives there. Okay, so I'll start our lightning round with fun tidbits that I told everyone about as soon as I read them. So when she and Donna Summer were recording No More Tears, Enough is Enough, then they had to hold the note in the word tear for 17 seconds. So they were sitting on stools next to each other during rehearsal. And when it came to the high note, they both just went for it. 
Barbara had her head back, her eyes closed. And when she opened them, Donna was gone. <laughs> <laughs> Donna Summer had fallen off the stool <laughs> because she couldn't hold. I mean, I guess she needed oxygen to breathe. Unlike Barbara, she was completely fine. And Donna Summer said, oh, my God, I can't believe you were still holding the note. But everybody was very spooked, of course. And but fortunately, Donna was fine and Barbara adored her. Yeah. Jason, her son, loved Donna Summer. So when the opportunity to work together came up, he was like, do it now. Uh, and this is crazy. So Aerosmith's biggest hit is based on some sweet words from James. So she's Barbara Streisand told the story in a 2020 interview with Barbara Walters about these sweet words that James had said and a songwriter for Aerosmith was watching and drew inspiration for the lyrics and I don't want to miss a thing. Their biggest hit <laughs> goes back to James and Barbara. Uh, right. So it's because I think Barbara was falling asleep and he said to her, I don't want you to go to sleep because I'll miss you. Oh, I'm just going to yes. break out on song. Yes. Now. Yes. Yeah. I don't want to miss a thing. It was uh, Diane Warren who writes all of those big ballads, which yes. was weird that Aerosmith did it. But hmm. And I miss figure. you, babe. Miss you, babe. I don't want to miss a thing. You're welcome. Wendy? Uh, well, when they were making the movie What's Up, Doc, which is one of my all-time favorites. I just saw it this past summer again in the theater. The director, Peter Bogdanovich, gave Ryan O'Neill the note, think Cary Grant when you're playing this role. And Ryan wasn't sure what that meant. So Bogdanovich arranged for a meeting between the two. And later, Ryan said that Cary Grant told him, just get a tan and also to wear silk underpants, which I guess is a great acting tip and valuable. <laughs> that is a good acting tip. Mm -hmm. I must use it next time we record. Mm -hmm. So Barbara bought a townhouse on the Upper East Side after she was turned down by a Park Avenue co-op and a Fifth Avenue co-op because she was an actress. She thinks it was because they assumed that she was going to play loud music and have wild parties. But she also wonders if it's because she's Jewish. When she was rejected, it hit the papers and prompted an investigation by the state attorney general into co-op board practices. An interesting thing is that she bought the townhouse, which had been owned by a hoarder. And when the hoarder was forced to leave, she was threatening people with a gun and Barbara saw a bullet hole in the window. Ooh. Ooh. Well, we skipped over the Don Johnson romance, which went on for some time. Um, couldn't get them all in. Couldn't get them all in. And no. they had like a, a pretty serious relationship. I think you get the impression he starts dating or goes back to dating Melanie Griffiths. I can't remember, but it seemed like it was head kind of fizzled. But she said, to this day, when Don Johnson sees her, he whispers, I love you in her ear. And she says, I never say it back. <laughs> I mean, they recorded a song together. I do remember that. Yes. They did? Uh -huh. wow. I think that was oh, the beginning. Right. That was that was the beginning of the end. So here's the beginning theme again the where end. he felt inferior once they were in uh -huh. the recording booth together. Uh-huh. 100%. Wow. Okay. My next one is uh, when Newt Gingrich once said to her, I'm your fan, she responded, I'm your enemy. <laughs> Who does that in real time? Who, she's so quick, right? Yeah, she's, seriously. She's, Probably it's easy to do with Newt. Yeah. 
So I did not see this one coming at all. She gets into day trading, like completely <laughs> devoted to day <laughs> trading, makes tons of money, researches. James gets into it for a while. Donna Karen New York, who's her good friend and designed not one, but two wedding dresses for her, gives her a million dollars to invest. And Barbara's like, I had not, you know, she hadn't invested anybody else's money. She was very nervous about it, but she doubles Donna Karen's money, not right away. But that was the last time she ever took anybody else's money. But it was another example of her <clears throat> endless curiosity and her love of learning and being good at everything. Everything. I mean, I would get nervous if Mary Anna Venmoed me 10 bucks for a movie ticket. I'd be like, it's too much responsibility. No. <laughs> so she's the only artist to have a number one record in six consecutive decades. That's amazing. amazing. Yeah, exactly. She also does her own makeup on many movies. Good for her. From the beginning. Is there anything that she left out? Is there any questions that you have for Barbara? I'll start. Okay. When <laughs> on, she mentions that she went out to dinner with Natalie Wood and Liz Taylor when she was in Funny Girl, and they were in the bathroom at the 21 Club, and she shared her lip gloss with them, and they loved it. I'd like to know what that lip gloss was. That's very good. You should you should email her. <laughs> <laughs> Any parting thoughts or we can wrap this up? I just found her brilliant. And I encourage anybody to read this and to take advantage of her being in this world and everything she's contributed. Yeah. And like she said, like one of her most important responsibilities is being a citizen and she's very mm -hmm. active mm -hmm. politically and she's very involved. She cares about the world. She cares about global warming. She cares about the injustices and she's doing something about it. She just she can sit in a mansion, put up her feet and do nothing, which, you know, doesn't sound bad to me, but she, that's not what she's doing. So thank you so much for joining us for this episode of It's Pronounced Memoir. Please rate us 5 million stars, subscribe, leave a great review, and go get yourself a Barbara. Bye. 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 Joining me, as always, are my co-hosts and, fel and fellow Barbara maniacs, and Imig and Andy... <laughs> Start from pick it up at joining me. <laughs> Andy Warhol. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>